Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I was just talking to my wife today, thinking about just finally cutting it off because yeah, I kind of grew this out during yeah. the, the height of the pandemic and I can have to go get a haircut now. <laughs> Ethan's big, big day out. Hey, welcome. If you listen to episode 184 with Jason Copeland, his magnum opus, Full Tilt, went live on Zoop, like his last week, and did great day one. Uh, he made funding and then some. I think everyone should check this book out because I think it's going to be fantastic. I think it's going to be the action adventure we all need. That's what it feels like. Um, more power to Jason and congratulations to him. Um, I've also completed the draft of the book. So the revision is done. And by the time this airs, I will have gone to and returned from the Nebula Conference in Anaheim, uh, which is the annual CIFWA convention. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's my first foray into the writer's world in this fashion. Uh, done plenty of comic conventions for the last 30 plus years, but this is a very different animal at least internally for me. I don't think there's going to be people sitting at tables with, um, you know, banners and that such around. I think this is a much more uh, talk and listen kind of place. So we'll see. I mean, I, I could be completely wrong. I'm looking forward to every aspect of it. Yeah. So just, hey, let's get right into it. Um, this week's guest is Ethan Young. Turns out we had a lot more in common than I had ever thought. It was great as the conversation unfurled, all these little things would pop up. He is um, unabashedly himself, which I think is fantastic and has strong beliefs about comics and his work and the industry, which I don't think is something we should shy away from. I think we should all be really, you know, honest about things regarding how we sort of frame ourselves within the business. And um, yeah, he's a... A fantastic talent and a really, really good person to talk with. Yeah, this is me and Ethan Young. I'm actually I'm in Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is. Oh, okay, awesome. I yeah. uh, I went to art school in New York City, but my girlfriend went to Wells. Oh, okay, yeah, that's uh, right in Aurora. Twenty minutes up the road, I guess something like. That. Yeah, it's, the town is so quiet. I actually did a. Um, a little college talk there not too long ago. And yeah, the students are really, I don't know. I don't know if reclusive is the right word. I think they're just very, um, <laughs> they're very quiet. They're very posed. They're very like, you know, poised and they're not exactly like extroverted. Mm -hmm. Um, so like they're, they're like, they're as shy as like toddler as like when I've talked to like really? some grade schoolers before, they're just, they're very incredibly shy and reserved with, um, a lot of their emotions. I think part of it could also be because they're like the generation that, kind of missed out on a lot of socializing in high school because of COVID. So that could have been a huge So this is a recent too. talk. Yeah, this was only like um, sometime okay. last year, uh, I think. Yeah, it was just, um, you know, Wells does this like writer series where they just invite authors to come and talk to like people. And um, and then like the, the I'm friends with what the organizer and the one of the professors there. And he kind of warned me that the students would be quiet and, there also won't be a lot of them just because of the size of yeah. the university in yeah. itself. I don't even think it's a university. I think it's still a college. It's tiny. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Doing the talk there, um, sometimes it feels like 
you know, if I know the, if I'm like a, a New York Comic Con or something, mm-hmm. giving a panel, um, if I know the audience is there specifically just to hear about the content that I make, or they're very interested in the subject matter or the themes that I explore, then it becomes a much more comfortable conversation because I know that I'm speaking, I'm, I'm preaching yeah. to the choir. Uh, with these students, I think they were just kind of like, well, come here for extra credit. I think some, some people at the time I was, when I went there, I was still working for Marvel Disney. Uh, so I, I think there was that slight, uh, excitement about that, that like I, sure. I worked for this giant corporation that makes 50% of the content we all consume <laughs> now. So yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe you had a magic wand for all they knew, you know, I mean, that's, uh, it's possible. Yeah, that's, I, that, that's so interesting. We, I went to see, um, Oh, wait, I'm, I've, I've started going to say a jazz musician's name and that's not the, uh, I went to go see Ta-Nehisi Coates talk. So Ta-Nehisi, yeah. So he, oh, you know, okay. he wrote the, that great Black Panther run. So he was speaking here at the local university and I, and I went and it was sold out, but a buddy of mine is in the, um, media. So he got, he got passes. He's like, let's go. So we went and it's in the basketball arena. So it, like huge space. And we thought we were like, oh my gosh, like parking was impossible, but they didn't fill it up. And what we realized, I think the student body was given tickets to go. And on the floor were all the seat where the seating and a lot of the students are down there. And I just remember seeing like the basketball team all just sitting there with their arms crossed for the, the hour and a half of him talking because they just didn't want to be there. They were, you know, 19 years old and had other idea, other things going on in their head. Yeah, uh, I find that um, yeah, when when you find a student who's really interested, and also like on top of that, like interested in exploring uh, like creative endeavors themselves, then it becomes the conversation becomes much more stimulating for them, and it becomes you know more rewarding for me just because I feel like I'm not just throwing out uh, mm-hmm. like anecdotes uh, to try to fill space. I'm just I'm actually kind of imparting some information that could be helpful for this young person's career. Um, Hopefully I can steer them away from becoming a comic <laughs> artist because <laughs> not the most rewarding life. No, I'm it's, it's I mean, it's the thing like, man, like everybody who like, I mean, I, you know, we've all heard it. Like if, like I just, you're doing it because you love it. Like there's this, there's this, mm-hmm. you know, there's this ability to express a story in comic books, it's very different than other, you know, medias. So the idea, and especially if you are a person who draws and writes, like this ability to kind of tell a story in this this amazing fashion, which is so immediate, but not completely passive. So it forces mm-hmm. engagement and it forces engagement on multiple levels, which I think is very different than most film or television type of uh, storytelling. And um, it's not to say that you can't get more out of those ones, but you can just sit there and let it happen. Yeah. um, When I first started working for Disney, I didn't realize, uh, like like I'm not working there anymore. I worked, I was a character designer on um, Spider-Man freshman year. And now that I'm now that I've left the show or I'm kind of on a hiatus, I can kind of like say that um, it's 
at the time, you know, it was like a breath of fresh air. I just finished, uh, wrapped up a big graphic novel for Scholastic uh, that wasn't, um, it wasn't something I owned. And so the, the process of making it was very, it felt, it was just very corporate, very by the numbers. And, you know, you know, I'm treated well at the publishers. It's just, it's just a matter of like Mm -hmm. fulfillment, personal fulfillment. And so when I went over to Disney, I was like, all right, well, now I'll get paid and now it'll be, I'll have like a set schedule, a set paycheck. So I don't have to hustle as much, um, from like a freelance perspective. Uh, but yeah, like over time, like, like, you know, it's just like you said, it's just, it's something you do because you love and, uh, for better or worse, you're, you know, people who grow up with it, that tend to be develop this, um, it's almost like our nervous systems are connected to this art form and like, we almost like have to have it just so our brains yeah. can function properly. Cause it, it is, it is a maddening field in terms of like, um, I mean, it's the corporate side of how little you're paid. And then there's also, um, just the tedious mm-hmm. nature of the work because especially nowadays, like people, um, they expect a lot more out of the same amount of time you have to right. draw something. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate that, uh, I've had a pretty, pretty decent career over the past couple of years. I'm, I'm very fortunate that like, you know, people seem to like my commissions and hopefully I'll still get to do them. <laughs> Let's kind of hop into the commissions cause it is an interesting aspect. And I, uh, you know, I talk about commissions a lot with people because when I was in the business in the nineties, commissions really weren't that big of a thing. They were m- much more of a rarefied event and, you know, and I've said it before and, you know, Adam Hughes is the kind of guy who paved the way for the modern commission experience. There was this real heavy need, I say need, but, you know, desire to get his work. And he just kept having to raise the price or he wouldn't have been able to do anything because it was just too much uh, request. And now we have sort of this whole, I don't know, it's like, it's almost like, you know, like, you know, private commission portraits being done for people getting exactly what they want by the artists that they love, you know, on, you know, for a piece. And it's an amazing thing. And it, but it, it, we are, the majority of us are deprived of this artwork because we can't go to the store and pick it up off the shelf. And I go, Oh, so much talent is being, you know, sort of sequestered away, but you share your process of creating your pieces, which is really great because you get to see that sort of that early stage or development. And what I really, I'm totally interested in asking is when I look at your work, I go, he's channeling what are clearly the main influences of that subject. So someone was like, I think you did like that sort of uh, Mark Silvestri era's uh, X-Men piece. And it really had all that vibe of that whole outback run of the X-Men, you know, but your style is still strongly imprinted in it, but you were able to infuse all these other elements. And then I see that with so many other pieces you do. And I think, I think that's a really amazing kind of gift that you're able to kind of give the person who's asking for what they really, truly, truly love and fuse it with what you do. You can continue saying nice things about me. I enjoy this part. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll just me. go through the list now. But it's but like <laughs> I mean, are you? I mean, is this a is this a conscious effort on your half when you're like sitting down to say, hey, I really want to give the person what 
when I know that they're going to love in the terms of like the subject matter? Or are you going, I love this so much, I have to like kind of bring it out too? Um, it's a little bit of both. I think um, I'm fortunate enough that like, I, I think my style appeals um, just because uh, within comic books, and I think that um, this is also true of some other mediums and genres like horror uh, or sci-fi, especially back in the day before it was more mainstream that like, because you're dealing with things that um, are a little bit outside the mainstream fans feel like a personal ownership of a lot of it. So I think that like, yeah, so you have creators who are fans and you have fans who are really connected to those creators, sometimes maybe on like a parasocial level that <laughs> isn't always healthy. But um, like I, I'm lucky enough to have uh, buyers and fans and readers who not only like my work, but like the stuff that I've been influenced by. So I think that like when I open commission lists, I'm, I, I get a plethora of stuff, but like I also get a large number of commissions of stuff that I really love, like 90s mm -hmm. X-Men stuff. Uh, or just, um, you know, my my favorite artist of all time is like Art Adams. And so like, if I get a chance to draw like his yeah. style of Wolverine, that's great and everyone is kind of happy. And like, you know, you mentioned about me sharing my process. There's a little bit of like, um, like personal gain from that just because I learned a while back just to kind of like um, game the algorithm mm -hmm. a little bit by like, it's showing the process and showing stuff that's actually not completed uh, tends to bring in a, a certain kind of like voyeuristic yeah. follower. Um, it, it might not always translate to dollars, but um, you know, unfortunately being an artist nowadays, being a cartoonist or illustrator, you also have to be like this cottage industry and you have to kind of, especially your, your own social manager, sure. social media manager, your own uh, department yeah. store head or whatever. Like it's just, there's all these little like, little elements always flying around and so yeah i learned that like oh i'll just consistently post this never-ending like incessant content <laughs> that just like bombards people like i also kind of um at first i was really self-conscious about it because like i didn't want to like annoy people and i think that's like a, a that, that, that's like something that a lot, of, a lot of creators are aware of that like well how much should i post am i annoying my followers because some of this content can feel redundant after a while but i realized that like well, if I post something and only like 15% of my followers see it, it there, there's no reason why I shouldn't post something similar down the road simply because I'm, I'm worried about some kind of like, you know, hypothetical criticism about it. Yeah, that sounds a bit granular in a sense of concern, because also people who are interested in what you do, probably it will be more joyful to see what you do rather than to not. You know, yeah. and, and, you know, that's that, it's that strange, you know, social media kind of phenomena that we have this sense that we have a greater sense of connection to these people who were attached to via social media. And I'm, I'm even talking friends, like we have friends in social yeah. media and that we feel that we are involved with their day-to-day -day life, even though we're not, we're just observing these small snapshots of whatever it is. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned you went to SVA. I went to SVA from ninety or eighty-seven to ninety-one. Oh, okay. I went there one year or one like yeah, one year. Um, oh one okay. to oh two, and then I'm still yeah, on spring well, break. Listen, they they, like they, they may not even have noticed yet, 
So you just keep, you know, you can come back whenever you want. <laughs> um, well, did was that your first foray going off into school, or did you switch over to SVA, or what was the? Uh... Uh, I had graduated from a high school. I, I went to LaGuardia in New York City. Oh, sure, yeah, of course, man. Um, and like I had, I, I was lucky enough to get like a, a ton of uh, formal formal training there for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not only classical skills, but like technical skills, because uh, anyone. Are you from New York City by any chance? No, I just lived there for 25 years. So. Right. But like, yeah. I'm pretty sure you've kind of heard of LaGuardia. Like it's uh, oh, yeah. especially, especially for a high school. Um, they can be really intensive in some of their training uh, for whether it's music or art. And um, yeah, like I had teachers that were really kind of hard on us while we were like juniors, while we were only like 17. Like I remember I had like I took an advertising class junior year. And this teacher, Mr. I, I still remember his name because he was he was really uh, in, instructional. <laughs> like he was a great artist, and mm-hmm. he, you know, there was there, there was always these rumors going around about him about just how how mean he was, how hard he was. But really, he was he told us like very early on that like he's going to treat us the same way an art director or an editor is going to treat us because you're not going to get paid for a job if mm-hmm. you don't hand it in. It doesn't matter if you were sick or not. And it gets that kind of reality can come crashing down on a 16 year old psyche. But like yeah. it really did kind of like, I think, forge a lot of us to kind of be prepared for a much tougher freelance experience going forward. And um, yeah, I mean, he was hard, but he was also if you did good work, he would be very uh, complimentary. Uh, if you did bad work, he'd, he'd kind of burn you a little bit, which was, you know, right. I wouldn't do that if I was an instructor, but that's me. Well, so one of my one of my favorite instructors at, at uh, SVA was Joe Orlando, and oh, okay. so Joe Joe got that kind of I don't know the, the, you know the reputation for you know the students as they would move up you know when you got the option to take his class and a lot of people didn't because oh I hear he's really hard on people and I was like oh, like isn't that the reason we're here you know so he took the class and Joe's class was was a great concept of a class but what you would do every beginning class each week, you'd pin up your work on the wall. And Joe would just walk down the line and just go saleable, not saleable, just straight through. Like not, he wouldn't stop. He would describe anything. He wouldn't say good, bad, indifferent, just straight on through. If this is something that you could sell or not. And it was crushing. And if you had the, you know, the guts, you would say, Hey, why isn't it sellable? You know, if you think you put the effort in, like, I mean, I think if you know, I mean, listen, we've all phoned stuff in, so you're not going to raise your hand at that point. But if you tried, he would, you know, but he would be honest and straightforward. He would never rip you. He would just go, this isn't working. Your composition's off. You're not telling a story, whatever the thing was. And it was a really smart way of doing it because it wasn't wasting anybody's time Mm. for the people who wanted to get better they were going to make the effort. The people who didn't wouldn't. And that was how it went. So, yeah, I mean, I applaud your, your teacher. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have found that too. Like, um, like I've met, um, I'm trying to say this diplomatically too, because I don't think that money should always be the indicator of success, but I, mm-hmm. but, in, but if we could be blunt about it, like I, I've met a lot of talented people who, like didn't really go the distance, uh, whether it be illustration or cartooning or comics, just because like 
no one can teach you work ethic. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. there's other factors that factor into it, whether it's mental health, whether it's your financial situation. But like, but at the same time, it's just like we all have a ceiling to hit, and like it's our personal responsibility to hit that ceiling, um, mm -hmm. because like no teacher is going to be able to like can't teach you to be like oh be obsessive about this anatomy book and learn anatomy at every single angle. Like right. I get a lot of young artists now who when they see my stuff, they ask me like, Oh, what models did you use? What reference did you use? And I'm like, my brain, that's it. Like I mm -hmm. obsessively studied anatomy because I had a much older brother, um, growing up who also wanted to be an artist. And we were like hyper competitive. He was nine years older than me, but we were still just neck and neck, just like competitive yeah. with each other. So I was like, this guy had nine years on me. And I, as a kid, I was like, I'm going to be better than you. Just watch out. So, yeah. um, yeah, like I, I drew and drew and drew until I could like remember how like a tricep looks backwards and forwards and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, you know, it's, like digital tools can be incredibly helpful, but I have noticed a lot of digital artists are relying more and more on, on painting over models. And there's nothing wrong with that. Reference can be no, incredibly no. helpful, but like one day you're not going to have that. And so it's better to commit some of that stuff. The more you can commit to memory, the better is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, it, it's so true. I mean, listen, technology is an amazing aid to, to sort of approve efficiencies or increase volume. But what we, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the software we have in our head and the hardware we have in our hands is really what we, what it comes down to. And I mean, I remember teaching students in an ad school and they, were really like, didn't want to do, they didn't want to do comps. They just wanted to like, Oh, I can just, you know, get a picture and write some words on top of a picture. And I'm like, yeah, but a client may not accept that a client has very specific needs and you have to fulfill that. And the agency has a sort of a reputation and you need to be able to execute or at least communicate to the people who will execute for you. And, and it just so happened that we had lost power at the at ad agency or at the design agency I worked for. And we had to, we still had to deliver things to clients. So we were doing everything by hand, uh, paste ups and whatever we needed to do, get things done while the power is out. And, and I said to the student, I'm like, who was sort of complaining? I said, well, what are you going to do if the power goes out? Like, you don't get to go home. Like the, like the client still ex expects whatever they, you know, have paid for. So yeah, I mean, and I, I'm like you, man, I've seen a lot of, a lot of people, relying on you know you know photo reference for getting things done which i think has an amazingly cool vibe to it but it's like it doesn't it also it makes you makes you dependent upon something mm -hmm. and I, and that's always a little bit of concern for me on anything that i do like i don't want to be dependent on some sort of exterior uh force or power for me to be able to achieve what I want to do. Yeah. Um, I think you become reliant on it. And then, especially if you're in comic books, you have to do, you're not just doing one illustration, you're doing dozens of illustrations. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes hundreds of illustrations. It depends how much, how many characters are in the book. If you count each character as an illustration, characters interacting with each other, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you're not going to be able to find every single pose you need. And I've seen some digital artists where it's like, okay, I'm going to have to fake it here and there. And it becomes glaringly obvious that they are not proficient at anatomy. 
And those things immediately take readers out. At least it takes me out. I don't know yeah, how yeah. readers feel anymore. Um, like um, when I was growing up, my favorite video was um, or instructional video was when Jim Lee was drawing for Stan Lee. Um, okay. I don't know if you ever saw that video. Yeah, like whenever. I, I remember- I remember when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I owned it on VHS. I watched it over and over and over again. And he gave this wonderful advice. Like the next time you're in a dentist, I'm paraphrasing the next time you're in a dentist's office, take a look around because you're not, that's not the easiest reference to find. Just try to remember what it kind of feels like and kind of looks like. So the next time you have to draw mm-hmm. it, you can at least kind of fake it and then go to photo reference to kind of fill it in a little bit. Yeah. Um, if you start with photo reference, I just think that like your mind has almost this, this rigid idea of what the setting should look like versus if it came secondhand, it, it was just kind of like, well, let me just trust my instincts about how, you know, you're like, if you ask any artist who, who just, who's just off the street, like, Hey, can you draw? Like, yes. Can you draw me a dentist's office? They know there's that long chair. They know there's that circular light. They know there's mm-hmm. probably like a light box on, um, on the wall for x-rays. Like you get right. the general idea. And I think that's incredibly important to have. Like, I think like 75% of what you draw should be from memory. Like I just think draw lots of things, draw them poorly. You don't have to draw them well, but at least draw them so that you know how to draw them. There was, so a real close friend of mine has, is a, he's a, he does like development artwork for video game companies. And he has a daughter who is now in Cal arts and she's a phenomenal artist, like ridiculously good. And he told me, he's like, he's like, he told her the only advice he really gave her was for every one thing you draw for yourself, like from your own fanciful, you know, invention, draw 10 things from reality. And I thought like, yeah, like that's filling up that morgue of information in your brain that you can pull from to manipulate when the time comes on the piece of paper or, or the digital you know, tool, whatever it is. Yeah, no. you're just expanding the tools in your toolbox. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of what um, I'm just stealing from Stephen King because that was in his memoir. Like just every creator is just refining the tools in their toolbox just because you're going to have to go there again. And like, you know, I think when I first started trying to make my own comics when I was in my 20s, like not only did I lack the experience and probably a little bit of the discipline, but it's just like I, I wasn't ready for some of the ambition that I had. I, I wasn't ready to fulfill it. And now, like now that I'm 40, if I if I'm thinking of a project, I have 20 years of experience in terms of like, okay, I know what I can do, I know what I'm capable of, I know how much coffee I can drink before it burns a hole in my stomach, you know, to stay up late and work long nights, uh, and I know like I know how many pages I can realistically get done for in a week for it to look good. And now, obviously, mm-hmm. with the kid, I have to factor the kid um, being being a stay at home dad too. So uh, I need. Like, it's just, those are just, just tools, like learning how to manage your own time and learning how to manage, okay, this is what you, this is what I can draw well, this is what I can hide a little bit, and this is what I can uh, shine a spotlight on. Like, I think, uh, especially with my commissions, like, one of the things I think I do well is, like, good figure work, and I could do good, good cross-hatching. So, mm-hmm. If someone comes along and says, orders a Batman commission, I know, like, well, let's say standing on a gargoyle, I can emphasize the gargoyle. I can do some cross yeah. from that. That'll make it look really good. Um, it could be nighttime. And so I can use a lot of black to just kind of hide certain areas um, and kind of emphasize like a, a, the silhouette of Batman. And so they just, I think that, that just comes with time. And 
a lot of stubbornness to kind of draw things over and over and over and over again. Dude, so this is this made me remember. You said something made me remember, and I guarantee you're gonna go of course so it's the oh maybe you went to you went to a fancy art school as a teenager but anyway maybe it still happened but when you were young and you had to do an art project and you were you know a little bit better than the average you know student in elementary or middle school you could really you know kind of flash it up with you know cross hatching and all sorts of these kind of like what were really relatively easy hand skills you know, at least for me at the time, but they would just totally like show off, you know, like in the classroom. So you would do these things, put your assignment into the art class and you'd get a good grade. And everyone's like, wow, because you could put all this work in at a quicker pace than the kids who really don't have that early facility with the drawing, with the eye-hand coordination. So um, so you're just doing like the the homework assignment, but like with way more grown-up skills. Yeah, uh, even it was, yeah, my high school was very competitive and I still, there were a lot of good artists and I, you know, when I first, when I first went there, like I was the best artist in like my junior high, my elementary school, which is not saying much. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got to this big fancy art high school, I, I knew there'd be some competition and like my drawing class was surprisingly competitive right freshman year that like there was a student who really didn't like me. And one time we were on a lunch line and he actually just, he went to get my attention and I said, Oh, Hey, what's up? And he goes like, he literally just blankly just stated to me, like, you know, you're not the best artist in class. Right. Cause he was, mm. there was like another good art, good artist, but no, I was better than him. I was better than all of them. Uh, but that's, that's besides <laughs> the point. No, I'm sorry. I was better than all of them in the end. Um, I'm not trying to say I'm the greatest. I'm just saying that I was better than those, those people. But no, like I, when I, here's the thing, there were some talented people and I worked harder to be better than them because it's just like. So that's the thing. I mean, so I I don't, I I feel like there's such a, you know, I I feel like an outcast so often um, in the term that I am so bloody competitive and if there's no one around me, then I have to be competitive with myself. Like I have to outdo whatever the thing that I did before. And when, so art school was just another, you know, battleground to be competitive on like, okay, well, I'm going to out hustle everyone here. I'm going to like do the thing better than other, other people. And it wasn't not to say that I was the best, but I was going to like, no one was going to outwork me. Like that was my attitude through school. So I think that's a, I think it's like, to me, it seems like a good way to go because otherwise you're complacent. Like that whole phrase of like, Oh, I'm pretty happy with that. Like I, that's never uttered. I've never said that. Like, I just don't think that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's good for my mental health. I'm pretty no, sure. No, 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 it's <laughs> not totally sure. not good for mental yeah. health. No. I'm pretty sure like if our parents were a little bit nicer, maybe, but like, um, yeah, like unfortunately that is the way I kind of became. And like I said, like I had a, an older brother who I was just hyper competitive with and that carried yeah. over. Like I'm trying to be better about it. I'm trying to be like, like, I'm still very, very competitive. I'm still trying to get better every day, but I'm, I'm trying to not, when I was younger, I would like put other people's work down, maybe not publicly and maybe not, you know, behind someone's back talking to a friend, but in my mind I would. And now mm. I try to look at like the best that like, and I think it's because I have a kid now. And I think it's because um, over the years I've, been asked to tutor students here and there and the thing i want to see most now from people is just are you passionate and 
are you putting your best foot forward? That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's it. Like you don't have to be Mobius. You don't have to be Jack Kirby or Julian Tamaki or anyone. Like you just like, can I see love shining through that page? That doesn't have to be right. perfect, but do you love it? Um, yeah. But yeah, in high school, I was very like So senior year, uh, this is a fancy, I, I won this, this little fancy award um, for, for draftsmanship. And then my, my art history teacher basically in class, I, I think I said something snide. And then she just kind of like jokingly said, well, well, Ethan, that's because you're the best draftsman in school. And I heard another student in the back of the auditorium just go like, hey. And so like, <laughs> there was that part of me that was like, oh, I got them. I got them. I got them all. Now they know. Nobody effing know who's the best. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so you went from LaGuardia, you went, you went to SVA. So you, but you said you were only there for a year. Um, was that by choice or by circumstance? A little bit of both. I couldn't, even though I got like some financial aid, it was really hard for me to like afford. It was always hard for me to afford art supplies. I always had to like mm-hmm. either borrow some and like, you know, not that I'm proud to say this, but I had to steal a lot when I was in high mm-hmm. school, uh, mm-hmm. like a pearl paints, just because if you, you've been to pearl paint, I'm assuming, right? I, I'm not, I'm neither confirming or denying any uh, theft of art supplies of any sort uh, yeah. in my time in New York Look, City. Yeah, pearl paint is gone now, as I can admit this, but like, oh my God, it was so easy to steal if you were careful. Oh, yeah. Because you yeah. had to pay for everything on each floor was managed differently. So I was like, oh, <laughs> this is going to be easy. Like uh, when I first went there, I didn't realize you had to pay for supplies on their respective floors so i was just going floor to floor with like a bag of art supplies and that's when i realized like oh i could have just walked out with this um mm-hmm. you know like you know pearl paint wasn't a giant corporation so i don't feel like like yeah i don't feel good about it like you know i don't i don't care if someone steals from like walmart like you know screw them but like i <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah like i couldn't really afford it and then when i went to sva everything kind of the, the the clock kind of reset in terms of like the courses they were giving us. And these are courses I had already taken. And that's the first thing I yeah, thought of. Yep. Yeah. And then like the professors are fine. Some of them were a little bit condescending and others were just a little, and, and others kind of recognized that, Oh, you're, you're really good. And once again, I was just really stubborn and I was so stubborn and competitive that I just kind of felt like, well, this is not for me. I think I know more than other people. So I'm going to mm-hmm. leave. And I put together a portfolio and Jim Lee, who is one of my favorite artists. I think you can probably tell. Um, it was uh, it was after 9-11. He had done um, a piece in the 9-11 memorial book. And he had also just done the Wonder Woman book with Stan Lee. Yep. He was going to be at a big Apple con. And I had these big dreams. I was like, oh, I'm showing my work. I'm going to get hired right away. It's destiny. I showed him my work. And he said some really nice things about my work because I was only 19. He's like, you're really good for a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then I went outside and I cried because I was like, I had built up all this uh, expectation in my brain yeah. that I was just um, like, oh man, like this is it. This is this is the story I'm going to tell my grandkids one day. But instead, it was just like, no, you're good. Uh, get get out of here because there's a long time to see Jim Lee. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No, I I had that. I had that. At 15, I went to DC at 15 years old thinking, this is it. Like, I'm going to roll back into high school, you know, and say, see you later, that kind of attitude. But um, yeah, and, and when you, it's funny when you were saying when going to SVA, the first thing that flashed in my head was like, well, first year at SVA is all foundational stuff. Mm-hmm. And 
so if somebody who's really formed in their head of where they are and what they want to do, it's super hard going into that school and not being able to do the things that you want to do. Yeah. And I'm guessing you weren't in the dorms. So you were, you were, yeah. So, I mean, that sort of made it a little easier for me because I was around all the other students in the school and the ones who were doing all the cartooning stuff. So I could hang out with them and we could talk comic books and all that kind of stuff. So at least it sort of was a slight fix for my urge. Yeah. Yeah. I get it, dude. That's, I mean, I can see that. So what, so it's a struggle, like, it's a struggle and Jim Lee, you know, says next, what, 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 it, what does a 19 year old Ethan do at that point? Uh, too embarrassed to show my face back at school. That's for sure. I was, yeah. I was, I was kind of a dick. Uh, I can curse on this podcast, right? I'm, yeah, of course. Okay. All right. By all, by all means. <laughs> no, I was, I was a little bit of a jerk. Um, and I, you know, I, I, pr- it, looking back, I think if I had become successful at a young age, it would have completely ruined me. Probably like not only in my artistic like progress, but also just as a person. I, I just don't think that like, especially now that I'm older and hopefully a little bit wiser. Like I just I I, I think when you see people who and I won't name names, but when you see people who get really successful at an early age and mm-hmm. are surrounded by yes people a lot, I think it stunts their emotional growth more than anything in terms of like what they feel they're owed owed and what they feel like they're entitled to, especially Mm -hmm. within the industry that once again, everyone within this comic book industry feels they have like some kind of personal stake and ownership in it. And so like now all of a sudden, like I just, yeah, I've met people who some, some of them I'm fond of and some of them I'm not who got, who found success early. And I just feel that like they react to setbacks like children and, Mm -hmm. Um, because I've had my, my fair share of setbacks, um, and some successes throughout 20, 30 years. Oh my God, has it been that long? No, the 20 years. Okay. I'm aging myself. 20 years. Yeah. 20 years. years. There you go. Um, I can handle setbacks better now. Like, you know, you devote, like, let's say you devote like two to three years doing a graphic novel. And let's just say, you know, in the back of your mind, you, you, you're a little quixotic about it and you're like, Oh, I hope I get, I hope this sells, sells enough to make me, to, to get me on the indie sell indie bestseller book list, or even the New York times book list. Mm-hmm. I hope it gets this award, that accolade, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the time stuff like that doesn't happen. Like I've met people like adults older than me who, when that doesn't happen, they, they, they tend to blame they, they tend to start to play the blame game. They tend to go, right. oh, my work's better than that guy. My work's better than that person. How come I, I'm, you know, fuck that person. Like that person doesn't deserve that. And it's just like, I might get like that every now and then. But mm-hmm. like nowadays it's like, all right, I put two to three years into the Dragon Path. It sold okay. Some people love it. Didn't win any awards. Didn't get like um, that much notoriety outside of just within uh, the middle grade space. Um, yeah. But it's just like, I have to move on. I would have been much more bummed out in my twenties because, you know, you, you, you put so much of your own personal investment into two to three years of work that you want to see that flourish beyond just one graphic novel. But now that I'm 40, I'm just like, okay, you know, I really like this book. I'm very proud of it. Cause I didn't skimp on any of the, the labor that was involved in it. I put my best foot forward. Um, it found a small audience uh, but not one that was large enough to warrant the amount of 
the amount of additional stories I want to tell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can be proud of that, but I can also um, be realistic and say, hey, it's time to kind of move on because realistically, I cannot do two to three point Dragon Path books for a small publishing advance. Like that's just simply right. is not doable when you have a mortgage and a kid now. You know, and like I said, mm-hmm. when I was a kind of jerky 25 year old, I would have been like, no, this is my legacy on the line. Uh, my art has a higher calling, <laughs> you know, all this stuff that like, you know, as a young artist, you tell yourself. Yeah. The, well, and the other thing is when you're younger, the percentage of time spent is much higher in the total. So mm-hmm. if you're, if you're 20, you know, 24 and you do this from 24 to 27, well, that's a, that's a large percentage of your life versus being 37 to 40. Like there's a, that you can, you can go, well, okay. I can, I can, I can learn from that, move on. But the other one is like, Hey man, that was a huge chunk of my life. And I think we have this, you know, it's like dating (laughs) the breakup. It's like, you know, you're heartbroken, you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of recovery time because the percentage when you're 16 years old or 18 years old or 20 years old of that time is significant. Um, Yeah. I, I, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, it's publishing, man. Like it's a back catalog. So mm-hmm. you don't know if the next thing or the thing after that's going to be the one that everyone just loves. And that creates pressure on publishers to put the older thing back out there because now there's this whole new audience that says, I got to have everything this person does. Well, then everybody benefits in the long run. So the good thing is, is just, you can always move on and do, just always do the best work you can do. And eventually something will strike. It's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so I, I adapted the 39 clues, uh, for Scholastic. That was my last publishing gig. Um, mm-hmm. it's set to come out this April. Like I'm, I, I think, I think a lot of people involved are assuming it's going to sell well just because of, uh, Rick Roydian's involvement as kind of like the, the figurehead, like, like not, not the figurehead that, that implies he didn't do anything. He wrote the original book. Um, he's more like not mascot. Cause that's insulting. Like he's just, um, the inspiration, the, the, the emeritus, like, cause they're still putting, Oh, his name. I like that. Yeah. yeah. He's, they're still putting his name up front. Kind of like, you know, Stanley introduces basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like emeritus of, of the, of the series, because he wrote the first novel back in 008 and it had a huge, huge following. So yeah, I think that book is going to, I think, send a lot of middle grade and early readers um, to the Dragon Path, uh, just mm-hmm. because Scholastic has both those books. Um, if that ever evolves into something where I can do another Dragon Path book, I think, um, it, it, I, I think money will be a, a big deciding factor, simply because uh, I threw out the word mortgage before, but also yeah. again, mortgages are just something you have to yeah. deal with now. It's yeah, I and I mean the amount of work that you like, I you know, you were kind and you shared you shared a couple of the books with me, and the Dragon Path was one of them. And I've remarked aloud reading it, like there's no blank panel. Like he is not leaving a panel, sort of like okay, well this is just going to be color in the background. No, like you you would texturize the air if you needed to, to make the panel have compositional strength and weight and, you know, 
vibe. So the amount of work that you put into every single page of that book is super high. So it like it's it shows now your audience does not appreciate that because they're <laughs> tiny. You know, they're not looking at that and going like, man, this guy is not putting in five hour days, you know. Um but it's uh it's it's totally it's totally there. So yeah, I mean and yeah, you're gonna like the audience will find it. It will yeah. find it in time. And fortunately in the same publishing house, that makes it a lot easier when it comes to reprinting. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. I'm glad you noticed that just because I didn't want to make it look jammed, but I didn't want to make it look empty. I, I wanted mm-hmm. every panel to kind of have a purpose um, yeah. individually. Like I, I didn't want to feel like um, the reader was being cheated in any way. Um, so as someone who I think you could probably tell from talking to me is incredibly self-conscious, I I, I read a lot of good read reviews and th- that's always a hellhole because like <laughs> I hate like the worst is when someone is reviewing a comic book but doesn't um not only clearly doesn't appreciate comics but doesn't understand like the lexicon and they'll mm. say something like like oh the graphics were okay and I'm like that that is be- nice yeah oh so you've seen that too right and it's just it like <laughs> it's hard to be insulted by someone who gets the terminology that wrong I guess yeah well, I mean, they, they, I mean, is it a, is it a fault of the medium in the sense that they call it a graphic novel? So they're just automatically utilizing that term and applying it to the graphical imagery on there. I I, it, I don't know. You I know. do think that I think sometimes the the layman reader doesn't want to say drawing because that sounds. Um, like childish, I guess. And yeah, it sounds it sounds derivative and yeah, yeah, I get that. And I think like sometimes people just want to try to sound a little bit smarter. Um, no, I mean every reader is entitled to their opinion, but I think that sometimes, um, I think sometimes readers and especially people who are trying to make a a social media presence out of being a reviewer, mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes, you know, they're, they're kind of. I, I just think that the point like. And obviously, you know, as a creator, I, I can I sound like I'm being bitter, which I am. Like I do think that sometimes a critic needs to judge a certain piece of work by what it's trying to accomplish, not what you liked or didn't really like about it. Like you don't judge a like, like let's let's say like um, a Hong Kong kung fu film the same way you would judge like a Wes Anderson movie, mm-hmm. um, just because they're trying to accomplish different things, like. Growing up, I loved like Roger and Ebert, uh, Roger Ebert, uh, Ebert and Siskel, mm-hmm. um, just because they kind of talked about movies in a way that kind of made it really accessible for someone who wasn't who didn't yeah. go to film school. And like you know, I remember like I read you know back when Ebert was alive, uh, God rest his soul. But like he, he he wrote really funny reviews, scathing reviews, beautiful reviews. But he also just wrote reviews I think that had cinephiles like confused because he gave like three stars to Garfield, and mm-hmm. people were like. I used to read his um his little like uh question and answer column and people were like give him so much shit about it like how how in the world can you give this movie three stars and he's like I'm giving it three stars because it accomplishes what like I'm comparing it to other films like Garfield I'm not comparing it to right. the Godfather yeah it's a, exactly there there isn't just one there's not just one bar that everything's measured on so you because it would be like well we're judging Barney against The Wire. Like yeah. you don't like it. Does it doesn't work like that? Like you have to judge things in relationship to you know, you know, the common comparable. And 
Yeah, and, and, you know, it's funny, even when you were describing it, going from reading the the reviews, there is a conflation between reviewing and critiquing. Mm-hmm. You know, they are not the same thing. Reviewing is taking something and saying, hey, here's what this is. It is not about you. This isn't about you and what you like. And I also feel very much in the same that you do about critiquing. It isn't about you either. It's about trying to understand what the intent of the creator's effort is and putting it in context with the world and the the other works in in the like. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I appreciated that you know, you said that you see the effort behind the work because like, I, you know, I just think that like, especially with the kind of graphic novels I make, the comics I make, like the drawing is part of the storytelling. Like the Mm -hmm. drawing, like I'm trying to say things with the drawing because I'm trying to create a world that looks like a lived in experience that feels like it can, that feels tactile, that feels tangible, that you can touch it. Like, um, because a lot of times I think you could, I, I kind of said this before, like I feel that a lot of um, comic books these days, at least from what I see can be a little flat sometimes. Like they can mm. be really nice drawings individually. Like lots of elements are really beautifully drawn, but everything feels like it's uh, nah, like flat. Maybe is a little bit too harsh, but like I see more effort than love. And sometimes, um, and mm even though I, I just said that I, I like that you noticed the effort I put in, but I also, I, I want to feel, I, I want people to kind of look at it and just kind of feel like they can step into that world. Right. Um, you know, it was like when I started the dragon path, like it opens with these, these big vehicles and like, I hate drawing vehicles, but I was like, you know what? If I was a kid, I would love to see this right now. I would love sure. to see something almost that, that, that's physically impossible, but can exist within mm-hmm. a page like this and feels real to me. I realize I just insulted a whole generation of you artists, so I apologize for that too. <laughs> no, I, I think, and I don't. I mean, this this could be a separate, you know, a completely separate conversation than the whole show, and it's right in its own right. That, and I don't know what, I don't know what the diff, the, the distinction is, because I I firmly believe that we are in a golden age of the comic book media. Like, I think the level of quality that is produced on a monthly basis is higher than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And, but I also feel that there's a lot of work being done that is relying upon whatever technological advancement there is to make it look the way it is. And when I say that, I mean, I don't see a lot of artwork with a lot of weight into it. Mm. No one's, not a lot of people are putting a lot of black into their work. So you don't see figures with shadow and backgrounds of shadow because we have this amazing technology at our hands with Photoshop or coloring that can create these really beautiful and lush pieces, but it doesn't, have the same sort of sense of weight when there's this consciousness of the the you know the penciler illustrator putting down black and it, you know so like why does the world look at Kevin Nolan and Mike Mignola with these giant glassy eyes is because well these guys are so good 
at putting weight into artwork. And mm-hmm. I'm just using them as extreme examples because right, right, right. We, most people don't get that far into it. So, yeah. um, no, I yeah, completely I, agree with you there. Yeah, because like, um, it feels, uh, I, here's how I would put it. Like, I sometimes I'll see like a beautiful drawing of like um, DC superheroes and stuff, but it doesn't even feel like they're remotely inhabiting the same space. There's mm-hmm. lots of individually well-drawn characters and they're arranged almost as if it's a collage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like the way like, you know, like, like, yeah, obviously, like I said, <laughs> I'm going to pull up one of the greatest, Jose Garcia Lopez, like when he drew I did, same, I, my, my head was, yeah, no, you took the words yeah. on my head. It was like, you can, I guess someone can say like, oh, well, isn't that the same thing that he did? And I was like, well, yes, but like those characters felt like they were occupying the same space because yeah. each, because their poses are balancing each other out. Whereas like nowadays, like you said, with Photoshop, you can basically work your way around bad compositions like mm. you know those there's that old saying like when i first started like there was a saying that like th- this was the biggest piece of advice which is if i can't read your st- if i can't follow your story without reading it then the storytelling is bad sure like i should be able to follow what's happening without having to read the word bubbles and it's just like you know like and, and does the arts sp- pass the squint test like can i just can, can mm-hmm. you just make out what it is by squinting um and unfortunately, like a lot of, uh, I see a lot of art nowadays that like, although it's well done and it's done with care, it's not passing these other, I guess you could say arbitrary, but what I think are pretty necessary litmus tests on whether or not it's good storytelling. Um, well, and you're, I mean, you're going back to your, you know, your teacher example from high school, you know, yeah. and I'm going back to Joe Orlando, like there's this, there's this criteria you know, and some may say it's arbitrary. Some may say it's how it is. And you go, is it making, making it there? And it, and I have a hard time, like, I don't, it doesn't have to all look like, and I'm just going to use Art Adams as an example. It doesn't have to all look like Art Adams. It can look like anything. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, looking at Dragon Path, you, you know, went down the hardest road possible by doing a, comic book illustrative comic book style for a middle grade book where so many of your sort of peer group of people producing middle grade they do very much reduced style of artwork to tell the same story and i think about that you know because i'm my work has always been very detailed and very sort of traditionally formed i go oh I, i i envy anybody who can kind of have a nice loose style or very, you know, <laughs> animated style because it's, you know, and not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it doesn't require 50,000 lines per page. It, <laughs> you can, you can kind of make shapes. And, and I, and I looked at the book, I'm like, man, he's got, he's put so much work into this for that market. You know, meanwhile, like Nanjing, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Nanjing. Yeah. Like, I mean, that work is absolutely like spot on appropriate in that market. Like what you're trying to relay there. Does does that make sense to you? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like you, you've went like double time on, you know, on the, on the dragon path, which I'm like, that guy's got some. Yeah. I think at the time I had this like romantic sense that it was going to be my last graphic novel. I think I was just like, Oh, if this doesn't 
if this doesn't hit, I'm just going to leave. And then the Marvel job came along as I, well, I'm leaving anyway. Right. Um, but you know, comics always pulls me back in cause I hate myself. So it's, I'm going to torment myself for the rest of this year when I'm done with my commission list. It, it, I mean, you know, so I got, got you know, I, I got out of the business at the, at the, at the millennia and, but I stepped my toe back in three different times mm. because I don't, I don't think you can really truly stop loving your first love. Like, it's just one of those things you're like, well, this seems like an interesting or fun thing, or I want to do this. And you kind of dip your toe back in and say, okay, I'll do it. And then often it upsets you, but, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be very cautious about how I approach comic books again, because I, number one, I know that I want to produce it and uh, produce it all myself, like, and self-publish it as well for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not it gets collected elsewhere is a different story. But I just know that, like, I don't want an idea I have to be to be churned through the kind of traditional editorial process where it becomes something different entirely because it might sell mm-hmm. better. Like, I, yeah. I, if something I I make is a little esoteric, I would prefer it stay that way. Um, which sounds, I I know I'm stubborn, so I, I know I can't change anyone else's mind right now. Um, but yeah, I just. I just know that like the next thing I do, it has to be something that I, I truly love doing. Otherwise I'm just going to either resent it while I'm finishing it or give up on it. And I don't want to do any of those two things. I, I want whatever I'm doing to be as fulfilling as possible while I'm doing it. Cause even sometimes like when I open a commission list and it's really fun um, and you know, I'm very fortunate that the money's been good w- w- with my commission list. Like I feel there, there are times when I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? Why did, why did I leave it open for that long? Like, uh, cause, cause I, I would feel, I feel bad when a customer and a buyer has to wait a little bit longer. Right. Um, right. Because, you know, the reality is it's like some of these commissions, it's like someone's, it, you could pay your rent with that money and right. you're giving it to me to basically draw on a piece of paper. So I want to make sure not only do you get your art on time, but you get the best that I can produce for that money. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, and I mean that's the, and that's a, and that's a strange thing because there is a difference between like my my wife is an artist and she's had to do commission work, so like, but not like a portrait, but in the terms of like installation artwork, she does she does a sculptor, and you know, and I see her struggle with that because most of her work is what she's creating for herself, you know, and she's solving these sort of internal you know problems or questions in her work but when it's like hey we need you to do this hotel lobby like there's initial development stage which is exciting and then it's a sort of this production aspect of it which she finds herself going like ugh. and (laughs) in in my design work it's the same thing like i love the development end of it it's just this sort of like middle area where i go oh boy like i gotta deal with all this client issues and blah, blah 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 so I get that on, on the commission end because it's not, it's not specifically your creation and it is not something you're putting out there in the market with that excitement level. So like if like Marvel said, Hey, we want you to draw this four issues of the X-Men. You'd be like, you're excited because you get to draw the X-Men. So that's going to be kind of cool. Um, 
so it's a little it's a different kind of mental game that you have to play yeah but I, at the same time like like you said earlier at the top of the podcast or at the top of this interview sorry um like the commission game has changed so much now and i think yeah a lot of artists have just because you know I, I know I've spent a, the the better chunk of the last 15 minutes criticizing modern artists, but I, I do think yes, there are a lot of talented folks out there, and like I, I think there's only so many comic projects and availabilities to go around that like now we have a lot of talented artists who I think are not only making a a really good amount of money from from their commission list, but like um and. A, like like a pretty sizable amount of their of their yearly income from it and i think sure. yeah, obviously social media helps with that but it's just like you know it's just it's reaching that level of like that finding that balance how accessible am i to, to people how fast can i do these commissions and what is the level of quality i can provide for each commission with the time frame that i have mm-hmm. um so that's what I spent like the better part of 2 years and during the pandemic to kind of like figure out like all right if i really want to do this and I really want to like charge more money for it down the line. Like how good do they have to be? And mm. I found that like, Oh, I have to basically put my best foot forward. So that's why I only open commission lists when I have a lot, when I have like a big chunk of time that I can devote to them and yeah, just kind of do the best that I can. Well, that's, and I think that's, I mean, the standard, and I'm, I'm going to use the gold standard again as, you know, Adam Hughes, like Adam mm-hmm. is the gold standard when it comes to commissions and everybody else has to look and go, Okay. Well, if, any, <laughs> if you're going to get anywhere in that neighborhood, you have to produce something that is so unique, so beautiful, so captivating that people are going to be willing to say, yes, I want to make this exchange. And it, and there are people doing it. There are plenty of people out there doing work, you know, on par with what Adam does, but he, like, he created the model. The world has now sort of changed and following his, his lead. Yeah. And then it's also this kind of like, like if you're Art Adams, you know, like, and I, I, I'm lucky enough, I have some original Art Adams art from Monkey Man and O'Brien, but like, you know, there's always, there's also the, um, uh, what's, what's the term I'm looking for? Like the old statesman kind of like, oh, he's been around sure. for a while. Yeah. That's kind of like the, the austere of it. And like, it, that comes with a higher price tag as well. So yep. yeah, I think that's why last year, I was like, you know, so I was working, when I was working for Disney, I was like, all right, I'm allowed to do non-Marvel fan art in, in the meantime. And so that's when I started toying around with like, well, what if I do a double page spread? Would anyone be interested in that? Yeah, and yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't see a lot of, like, there are people who do large commissions, but not as as many as you would think. And so like, okay, I can try to plant my flag here. Like, all right, who wants a double double page spread? And yeah. I'm fortunate that only three people order double page spreads this commission list because uh, I, I don't know how much more my back can really take. Just because. <laughs> um, so it's like okay, that's that, that's a good amount, and when they're done, I can show them off a little bit. But like, yeah, I, I think if it was any more than like five, I would have really regretted it just because of um, preparing all of that. Just yeah. yeah. It's just, it's the physical, like now that I'm 40, it's the physical toll. Like I, that's the one thing I miss about being 25. It's like, I can just, I can just tor- torment my body. I'd be like, this is, mm-hmm. the, the, this is all future Ethan's problem. Like yeah. I can stay up all night, eat garbage, drink tons of coffee. Yeah. Um, but now it's like, nope, I uh, have to go to bed sometime. Hunched over a drawing table. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I remember I had a, I had a moment of panic 
in, in the nineties, I, I felt like my eyesight was going and I went to an, an eye doctor and he, you know, he tested me. He's like, yeah, your eyesight's totally perfect. He goes, but what you're doing is you're just over taxing your close focus. So he's like every, like every hour, just take a five minute break and look out the window and just for a few minutes, just look out the window, let your eyes relax. And that did the trick. But um, yeah, man, the sh- the shoulders, the back, the neck, the hands that they just they take it. They take a beating after time. I'm actually lucky that my hands have gotten better just because I switched over from like a nib and brush to like the uh, using mainly a calligraphy pen because okay. that kind of gets the same big strokes that I need. Um, I think without that pen that I discovered, because I like I spent years looking for the perfect calligraphy pen that had the uh-huh. right flow, that had the right, that, that had the right, like durability. Um, and yeah, that's really, it's allowed me to produce a lot and save on hand cramps and stuff like that. That's but like good. the shoulders and back, unfortunately, every now and then I know that like, all right, it's been several weeks since the last time my back acted up. I know it's coming up now. Um, <laughs> things like that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the ice, I think, cause it's been happening to me too lately. I'm, I, Sometimes I worry it's just going to go, but I do think yeah. it's just because uh, I'm just staring at this white piece of paper and, and it's just staring back at me uh-huh. and it's just hurting my eyes. Well, I, I, so I, you know, I, I wear readers um, to be able to see you rather than see a fuzzy version of you on the screen. And I did not have to have any eye support until I think I was like 52, mm-hmm. maybe 51. And it, it just, it, it was at that point, I'm like, I would notice my I was holding the book further and further away from me when I'm reading at night. And then, um, yeah, but now it's just like, I can't really read anything that's within arm's distance without wearing readers now. And it's just such a drag. <laughs> um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's it sucks. Um, Wait, if you don't mind my asking, how old are you now? I'm hold on. I'm 55. Okay. Be, I'll be 56 at the end of the year. Yeah. You look good for your age. Thanks. But you thanks. look good. It's, it, without the white, it's just the, the white beard gives it away. But like I didn't, well, I wouldn't. Okay. Without that, I wouldn't have guessed in your fifties. I'm, gonna, I'm also gonna, I'm also gonna not be too too touchy here, but I'm gonna be touchy. Um, when I had hair, and I was <laughs> a absolute white headed blonde. Like my hair is so pale and blonde that my beard has always looked like this. I had a little bit of red in it because I have redheads in my family. But um, yeah. So, but yeah, if I shave, I look I look much younger. Yeah, I and imagine. and and a little and a little pudgier. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, let's so I you know, let's talk about our Adams. I, I, oh I don't, yeah, I don't, sure. mind, I don't mind talking about Arthur. Um, I so I'll I'll give you my little Art Adams rundown, and then I, I want to hear how your whole thing goes. So, I discovered. I, my first, the first bit of Art Adams artwork I saw, what I didn't know what it was. Like, I think he had done a cover for something and he just signed it Adams. And I thought like, huh, does Neil Adams have a kid? Like that was my mind. Like I didn't know he does. And then long shot came out. Mm-hmm. I was in high school. So I was like, you know, peak comic buying, you know, nerddom age. I was just so into comics and this thing came out and it blew my mind. Like it was, I hadn't felt that sort of 
taken away and engaged into a comic book, a new comic book since the Micronauts came out. Mm. Now I loved, I loved my Daredevil runs. I loved my X-Men runs. I loved all the, the Moon Knight and the New Mutants, all those things with all those amazing artists, you know, but the thing was they had existed before. These were new. And when Longshot came out, I was just blown away. I'm like, this is the guy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, and then he did those strings with the, uh, the new mutants and the X-Men annuals and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And it was a you know, glorious, you know, glorious time for me, especially as someone really focusing at that point saying, I want to get into comic books. So Arthur was a real big kind of, you know, encouragement factor. And I remember going to, uh, the creation comic book shows back in the Roosevelt Ho- Roosevelt Hotel, right next to Grand Central um, Station Terminal, Terminal Terminal Station, and yeah, he um he was one of the guests. So this is like 1985, maybe 86, and I was just blown away. Like this is the dude. So um, how did you discover Arthur's work? Um, so. Growing up, my, so my brother was nine years older and he gave me, I remember like a lot of my comics were just stuff that like was left over from his collection. Yeah. So I didn't have a lot of complete runs. And I don't know exactly when the first time I saw Art Adams was, um, but I do remember the first Art Adams comic that really grabbed me. And I think it was X-Men Annual number 12 with the High Evolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sure. has the backstory with the ex babies that ends up leading to the Excalibur annual. Yep. Um, and then like, that was when his style was starting to like really crystallize. Like his chins got a little bit bigger, and yep. things got a little boxier. And I remember like just being in love with the ex babies. Like I loved the way he drew Little Wolverine. I loved I loved the way he drew Mojo. Like I couldn't. Um, I mean, obviously Mojo is probably a little problematic. That's yeah, because it is kind of like, oh, look, he's fat. That's why he's grotesque. And it's like, uh, you I, you yeah. definitely would not design Mojo today. Um, but like just the way he was like drawn, like I'd never seen a villain drawn that way. I'd never seen designs like that uh, on mm-hmm. the, on a page. And it just completely blew my mind. And then uh, when I got a little bit older in junior high, um, you know, I was I was collecting like, you know, I, I think what also kind of drew me to Art Adams even more was because a lot of the other artists I love, like Joe Madavera and J. Scott Campbell at the time, and like Ed McGinnis and all those guys, were all just people who learned from Art Adams. Like, sure, um, totally. He's he's quietly like you know like what like one of the ten most influential comic book artists in North America, and basically from there I was like, all right, I got tracked down all his X Men annuals. And then there was that New Mutants one he did right before annual number number nine, I believe. The, the New Mutants special leads into X-Men mm-hmm. annual number nine with Storm. And then I was like, all right, I got to get his Gumby. And then his new Fantastic Four, that three-issue arc was yeah. fantastic. Um, and yeah, basically, and then like Monkey Man and O'Brien came out and that blew my mind. So basically, like, I, I just went around just hunting down everything he did. Um, the, oh, the Action Comics uh, number one annual post-crisis. Yeah, I love that with, thing. Yeah, with Batman and uh, the vampire. It was Giordano inking, right? I think so. Yeah, which I I thought was, I think it's Giordano. Anyway, I mean, I just, I loved, I loved those inks on there because it felt so different than everything else. Yeah, I was just like, oh, this is so kind of cool because it didn't feel as sort of like, 
you know, pixelated as Terry's art inks could be on somebody. Like, like there was this kind of cool weight. Yeah. So yeah, it was basically like it was Adams and Jim Lee and like and Todd McFarlane. It's like I want to draw like these three people. Mm-hmm. And then like as I got also like I got as I got a little older, I also you know like every other kid loved Dragon Ball. So like Akira Toriyama's art um, became influential. And but yeah, like it's, it always goes back to Adams in terms of like when, when Adams was the was I think the art style that kind of like revealed to me that like oh you can leave your mark on art. Like mm-hmm. before then, when I was a kid, it's like all comic book art was impressive to me because I didn't know how anything was done. Right. Um, like I knew Neil Adams, like I had a cop, I had some reprints of like, you know, Green Arrow, Green Lantern that had a coffee stain on it. And I just loved mm-hmm. it because it was a comic book and I could tell it was somewhat realistic. Like Art Adams, his style, I think, just spoke to a lot of young people because it's like it, it's the art that's meeting us on our level. And then. Yeah. It was a, you know, it was a big change. So I'll, I'll, I'll move the, I'll move the dial back, you know, a few years to what inspired art's work, which was Michael Golden's work. Like where I, I think without Michael's sort of, you know, we don't get, we don't get what we call Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man webs. Those yeah. are Michael's webs, you know? Yeah. And what, what Todd and what Arthur, all these guys kind of pulled, like they in the eighties were able to, I think just because of the, the decade itself was a very sort of kind of colorful decade. I think there was this kind of vibe that was happening. And we had seen people like Frank Miller really kind of change what his style was from, you know, the, daredevil stuff to going on to ronin and then going into the dark knight returns uh seeing bill sinkevich evolve into what he became i think there was this kind of like i think that awakening like where you can kind of put your mark on the world i think really kind of came and arthur did the same thing he's like here's what i love but i want to make it look like this i want to make it look cartoonier or whatever the thing was that he was kind of saying he wanted to do in his head and then you know jim I think Jim loved Arthur, but Jim also loved, you know, John Byrne. And he did this amazing fusion of John Byrne and, you know, Art Adams and sort of created like a perfect comic book look, you know? And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really kind of cool time. It's cool. I love thinking of that, how that evolution works. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I would love to see Arthur do more work. I'd love to see more storytelling from him yeah um i remember the last thing i collected from him that wasn't just covers because he did like um i think like 10 years ago he did a big run of god kaiju covers for idw yep so i got all those but i remember he would he would just do the uh join a future shorts in the tom strong anthology series Mm -hmm. and i remember at the time like i i this is great i can get like a few pages of art adams every month this is all i need (laughs) a little fix get a little bit of fix yeah. yeah it's so you know it's so funny and like i'll tell you and this is the weird competitive thing in my head that i hope you'll appreciate <laughs> huge huge art adams fan like you know loved this guy was my you know was was my sort of high school hero and i i, I was i was penciling a book for dark horse and it was so issue number one and i'm like all right cool and then i get a call from the editor saying Hey, yeah, you know, this is that and the other thing. And hey, and we're getting Art Adams to do the cover. Oh, and I was sweet. like, <laughs> no, I'm like, 
fuck. Because <laughs> all I wanted to do was do the cover for my own comic book. I right. could, like I I was so like I was so annoyed. Like I couldn't like channel my fifteen year inner fifteen year old to say like, dude, Art Adams is doing the cover for your comic. You know, it was a few years later. I was like, what was I thinking? Of course, it was a great idea. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was me being competitive. Only natural though. Which is, it's a good thing to be competitive so long as we have some, some distance from it and we can kind of uh, reflect on it, hopefully for the better. Yeah, and be, and be nicer people in the long run at the end, you know, stop being, stop being overtly competitive. That's always yeah. a good thing. Uh, unless you need to be because they're asking for it. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah nowadays, I, I, w- I would like to think the work, speaks for itself but every now and then it's like no i gotta uh, i i gotta flex a little bit here now well i i mean i i mean honestly that's that might be the reason that like i said i reached out to you because i'm like because the work that you're putting up i'm like this is like they're the flexes i mean they're these really beautiful pieces of artwork and i'm like this guy's got like you you just had a very like very like i said you were infusing these things that i thought was a really thoughtful approach to creating action superhero you know commission artwork and i thought like, oh, that's just kind of a cool approach so being thoughtful let's talk about what i think is an incredibly thoughtful work which is nanjing oh, okay like what's the evolution of this how did this come around for you um well so at the time i had finished high school um you know the japanese occupation of the republic of china was always something that like i at least kind of casually knew about just because of my my family um Mm -hmm. you know they immigrated here from china and then had me um and there was like you know there was a lot of animosity towards still towards japan from my parents um just because and i don't know if you've ever seen like have you ever seen the show kim's convenience about the korean uh, like you know uh, you know, the, the father has a lot of animosity towards China. I mean, that's China, oh, maybe China, but also Japan. Um, right. And it's just, it's just something that like is, is like a casual thing um, amongst a lot of us, uh, of the, uh, a lot of Asian Americans of this generation, yeah. just like, Oh yeah. Our parents came from, uh, were born right after world war two. And so that is their, their milieu. That is the setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, for how they see the, for how they view world politics on, on, on the Pacific. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, when I first learned about it, I think, um, I, I felt a sense of like, almost like a nationalistic duty to do something about it. And I was like 18. I was a stupid kid. I had read, um, you know, the rape of Nanjing by Iris Chang who passed away. And I read some, a few other like his, shorter history books, um, that mentioned it. And in my 20s, I thought I was ready to do that book. And I really was not ready to do that book at all. <laughs> um, so I decided to do a book about my life instead at that time, which was me, my girlfriend, and we started like rescuing cats and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And I worked in the Humane Society. So when that was done around 2013, um, my career was a little bit more stable, my freelance career. Um, I didn't really have a lot of like proper comic credits to my name. So I just started like, you know what? I want to revisit Nanjing as a concept. I want to see if I am both thoughtful and um, skilled enough to basically approach the story now with the kind of care and maturity that it kind of requires. Um, And yeah, I just, I I did like 60 pages 
just all by myself. And I thought about self-publishing it. I had a diamond account as a self-publisher. I showed it to the person who was in charge of the account at the time, and she gave me some advice. And then I reached out to a friend who knew someone at Dark Horse. And as luck would have it, they were pretty open to kind of looking at the at the project. And hmm. you know, the editor at the time was Jim Gibbons, um, who became a friend. And yeah, he really he really liked the project. He championed it. And then I was very fortunate that Dark Horse, you know, took a shot on me. So yeah. that was it, it all worked out and the book um it it did pretty well uh for for you know for, for the kind of release that it was. Like it's it's only in black and white. It's from someone who is not a big name and it's you know pretty harrowing kind of uh historical drama histor- yeah. um, and stuff so um yeah I'm, I'm very i'm i'm very happy with the way it was received well so a, a few things and uh, let's see if we can figure them all out like one what what did you like what was your idea heading into it like and how did you like create this like the storyline for the for the the comic because it's a really interesting way of telling it because you're like you're in the in the middle of it with these characters versus looking at it from an external point of view you're not giving this sort of like here's what's happening and what's moving around you let the characters say what they know and they don't know everything so there's no omniscience in this this is very you know first person and were, did think, did anything else inspire you in creating that? Like, were you looking at other works and saying, "Oh, I like how this is done," or like films or? Uh, there were a couple of films that were made later on, um, in between uh, me doing my book and me being eighteen. They kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, made over in China. That kind of like um, dealt with the tragedy, and you know, I watched it and I was I was inspired by them, but I also kind of didn't want to be too inspired by them because I didn't want to end up plagiarizing sure. too much of it um but i did kind of take take from it some um references of like oh well that's probably how the clothes would have looked et cetera, et cetera. Mm, sure. um, okay but overall i think when i was first trying to do the project it, like especially like in my 20s i just i just didn't have experience making books and so i didn't mm-hmm. really know where the best place to start a story was and i think having characters being thrown right into the situation and throwing the reader into that situation, like media res, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, that sense of kinetic confusion. Um, I think I use that to kind of masquerade um, shortcomings mm-hmm. in a way that's kind of like, okay, okay. Well, I, I, I'm not the greatest historian. I'm not a journalist. I wasn't there. So I, there's things I don't know. There's things the readers probably don't know. So let's make that the case for everyone here. Um, Mm -hmm. And that also kind of just heightens the drama right away because you're immediately just thrown in to this, um, to this scene where like, you know, you see this, you see the captain basically need um, to find resources right away. Um, They're they're hiding from the enemy right away. So then within those eight pages, uh, you know, like it was just, I just set out to like, all right, I got to make the storytelling really tight so that you're drawn in immediately and you understand what's happening um, right off the bat. And so the characters themselves were also just kind of like, uh, or I was like, okay, what archetypes can I use to kind of make the reader immediately understand what the stakes are? And it's like, all right, here's mm-hmm. the lone, he's not really a lone wolf, but he's kind of like the man with no name because he has no name really. And, right. you know, he's, he's emotionally reserved. He's headstrong. 
Um, he's, he's confident, but he's hiding his vulnerability. And I mean, yeah, I give him a soldier that he has to care for. Um, a, a, a third soldier dies right in the first mm-hmm. 20 pages so that you understand the stakes. Um, and then they, and then, and then like, you know, all the history books that deal with it, uh, that deal with this tragedy, this incident, talk about um, how obviously just how mis- mismanaged the auxiliary forces were, how the one exit that all the soldiers kind of went to was compromised, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, all right, these soldiers are aware they have to go someplace. They're going to try to get there. Um, if you know anything about the history of it, you know they're doomed. And if you don't know anything about history about it, you fear that they're doomed. Mm-hmm. So that was basically it. And it's just like, all right, let me try to do the best I can do as, <laughs> uh, this, it was like, a, it was, yeah, it was a big undertaking at the time. And I felt like looking back, I'm still surprised. I got, I, I pulled it off without, um, without screwing it up too much. Well, did you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to write down my answer. <laughs> okay. Um, did you, I mean, did you sit down and write a script? Uh, not really. A lot of times, and this is, I'm sorry. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I basically, a lot of times the way I work is I will do layouts and thumbnails. Um, and within, within that process, um, important dialogue will be laid out. Mm-hmm. Like with the dragon path, because it was signed uh, after I finished the uh, first 24 pages when Scholastic signed me, they, they kind of acquire a little bit more process yeah. uh, to, to be examined. And so I did the layouts and a PDF of the entire 200 page book. Um, but usually, you know, when I use the way I used to work was, okay, I have a scene in my head. I know what the big flash points of this, uh, of the story are. I know where I know we have point A, point B and point C um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what goes in between those, but I know the emotional heights that these characters need to go through. And then mm-hmm. I'll sometimes do some layouts and some, you know, just some, uh, dial, write, write down some dialogue, like, okay, what's exposition, what's, um, character development. And this kind of build around there. And it's a very, I think you could say like haphazard way of approaching comic book making. And I think this is also one of the reasons why. I mainly just work by myself just because my process is a little unconventional and I feel like I'm the only collaborator that understands my process. Ethan, I, I actually, I think you're, it, it is not unconventional because <laughs> the majority of comic book artists who are also writing their own stories that I talk with predominantly work from thumbnail to towards script. Like there's this, because I think we have a leading edge of telling story visually. So we, we lay onto that and go, okay, well, this is, this is the easiest way for me to get from point A to point G and I'll, I'll work my way through there visually and then kind of elbow it and muscle it and kind of grind it out to figure all the little details out. So I don't think that's, I don't think it's too far out of the, the ordinary in that respect. Um, Cause it often you just don't sit down and go, okay, page one, panel one, you know, like, you like it doesn't really work that way. I mean, you have to outline however you outline and if it's with drawings, that's how you do it. That makes me feel a little bit better. I know I'm not the only one then. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I, I, it works. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it works. And more than anything, I think, like, because when I'm doing something, I want to make sure that the set pieces feel right. Like, I think, like, when you think of, like, great movies, for instance, and, you know, I, I sometimes think that the comparison between comics and movies can be uh, fraught because they sometimes especially nowadays, like people think of comics as a launching pad for movies too much in TV shows. But like, you know, when you think of a great movie you love, you think of like, Oh, I, I, I know, I know a bunch of, I'm thinking of all the great scenes and how it made me feel. And even with comics and books, it's like, Oh, I remember the dark Knight when he comes back. I remember the mud fight, things like that. Mm -hmm. Like I want to make sure that those big flashpoints ring true. I want to make sure that like, all right, it's what I'm imagining in my head. Like, I need. I have scenes that I know are required to be there, but now it's my job to make sure that everything in between works. Like when I was doing the Dragon Path, it's like I know that when Prince Singh uh, embraces uh, Midnight at the end, the audience has to feel like, oh, they're they're finally connected. Mm-hmm. It, like she is family to him now. Like yep. and now now I need to make sure that they. Like, you know, and, and it's pretty generic the way I did it. It was like no different than any kind of like Pixar thing. Like just kind of like you meet, there's a confrontation, try to solve the confrontation. Uh, something goes wrong, but you remedy it at the end. Like, yeah. you know, it's just, it, it's like, it's a formula and it's a tried and true formula. And I was like, all right, there were times like when I was doing Dragon Path, I was like, this is 200 pages. I'm tired. My back is going out. Maybe I should just cut out 30 pages. Maybe she shouldn't turn evil for those 30 pages. And right. it's just like, she's good the whole time and they hug. But it's like, no, right. she has to turn bad a little bit for, you know, otherwise that ending doesn't mean anything. You don't earn it. Like yeah. the, the it's not, it's not earned and it, it's just, you know, it's a little handholdy. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think you did that like with Nanjing is that you have this, this protagonist who not by want has to take on caring for other people like i i feel that that character would have been far happier on his own running some sort of you know counterinsurgency by himself versus having to take i mean and and you show examples of we can't get involved you know and people get killed you know mere feet away from them because they're making the choice which is the we're not going to make any difference in what's happening there and we're only going to get ourselves killed. So we have to move on. And you enrobe your hero. I'm using the term hero, but your protagonist with this armor, which this, I'm going to call this magic armor and the magic armor is the coat. And the reason I call it magic is because he lays a magic spell upon it when he describes the coat so when he gives it to, you know, his underling, his underling is now protected because he feels emotionally like this is this this has a greater sense of value than just a thing to keep me warm. Like it was a very it was a very like poignant element, but it also the protagonist is then giving up his armor. Yeah, and that I was, like, makes him vulnerable. Him away slowly, like like I love it in movies when like a character looks really different in the end than from the beginning like for sure like um jack mclean john yeah. mclean yeah <laughs> or like um like i love i hope i don't get his name wrong the the director Al- alexander payne might mm-hmm. sometimes i get alexander and thomas payne 
mixed up and those yeah. are two different. Um, but like, I, I love like um, an, an election and Matthew Project and by the oh, end of the film looks yeah. horrendous. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, his own hubris has done that to him. And the yep. same with like Thomas Hayden Church and Sideways. It's like, yeah, your nose is broken because you you deserved it. And like, yep. yeah, I just I love um, I love when characters half are forced to change from the beginning to the end because it shows like a real a real path that they took and a real journey that they went on. Cause otherwise it's just, it feels like fluff. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also looking at the time and I'm, I'm sorry to say I, I have to go now. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I got it. Um, so we'll wrap it up. I got so many more things I want to talk about. Um, thanks for joining me, man. This was absolutely super fun to talk with you. And I, I really think we could have, if we had all the time, we'd keep talking about other stuff. Thank you so much, Alex. Yep. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye.